Thank you, Spence. Um, we, we have a limited amount of time. We have an extraordinary group of people here in the audience, and we have, uh, I have to say in my experience, an unprecedentedly extraordinary group of theatrical luminaries here on stage. So I am going to just say a few words about each of them, and we're going to go straight to questions because we think that this interaction is what I hope the Academy is all about. You know James Earl Jones, who's been introduced and who you've just heard speak. Edward Albee has won the Pulitzer Prize three times. He is uh, a three separate Pulitzer Prizes, not the same prize three times, he points out. <laughs> and I dare say it won't be the last time that he corrects me in the course of this. He is a strict taskmaster, but really a great, uh, historically great playwright. He's a member of the Academy of Achievements class of 2005. Uh, Sally Field, who addressed you this morning and who you've met, is, uh, of course, has an enormously distinguished career as a film actress and uh, made her Broadway debut in The Goat by Mr. Albee. She's won a couple of Oscars. She's joining us again this afternoon, um, shortly after having made plans for me to bring her to New York at the public next season. Is that right, Sally? That's great. Uh, she's also a member of the Academy's class of 2005. Uh, Tony Kushner uh, is uh, uh, here on my left, uh, who wrote Angels in America, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize. He wrote Homebody Cobble, one of the most extraordinary plays of the last few years. His musical, Carolina Change, is, was heartbreaking and gorgeous and played on Broadway last season. And uh, he is, um, I think, in many ways, the definition of a public intellectual, Tony Kushner. Uh, Stephen Sondheim. It's actually impossible for me to find uh, appropriate adjectives for Stephen Sondheim. He is the most important musical theater composer that we have. He has helped redefine the entire genre. He is an extraordinary man, and he has also been an incredibly generous mentor to younger composers and writers in the field. Uh, it's just an honor to share the stage with you, Mr. Sondheim. And uh, finally, uh, I don't think I need to give much introduction to Denzel Washington who uh, we like to think began his career at the public theater. Denzel, I don't know if that's how you think of it, but we think of it at the public that way, but has gone on to become one of the very few uh, artists who combines enormous respect from his peers with immense popular uh, success. He's won Oscars, and right now he is on Broadway uh, playing Brutus in an extraordinary production of Julius Caesar. He's a member also of the Academy's class of 2005. This is, I am sure you have some idea of the people that you're sharing uh, this room with today, but I, I'm frankly a little nervous, and I rarely get nervous speaking in public. <laughs> Um, we would love to take questions from you about the title of this panel, this now sadly abbreviated panel, Passion, Creativity, and the Arts, gives you an idea of what we're here to talk about, which is what we love about our work and what we think our work brings to the world. But please, come down to the mic and ask some questions, and let's see if we can get this rolling. Do I have a brave beginner? I do! Hi, uh, thank you all for your time. Um, I actually had a question for Mr. Washington. I, for my 13th birthday, I saw Malcolm X, and it's been running on HBO lately, so I've watched it about eight or nine times. So I had knee surgery and I can't get out of bed. So uh, probably every time I see it, I notice something new about the movie, um, and, I, and I thought it was a really deep um, and very introspective analysis of the black community and, and, and black empowerment. And I would love to hear kind of why you chose to do that picture and maybe what you took out of it and the opportunity to work with Spike Lee. Uh, and also just congratulate you on the Oscar because it was great to see you on stage uh, winning one, so finally. Thank you. Um, I had done a play 
uh, about Malcolm X called When the Chickens Came Home to Roost, which was down at the Henry Street uh, Settlement, uh, New Federal Theater, back in 1981. And it was a fictional meeting between Elijah Muhammad and, and Malcolm X. And uh, it was, it was uh, good fun and great success. So I, I knew that I could play the part and was hoping to, to get the opportunity to, to do the film one day. And uh, Spike put it together. And, and uh, we, we, we had a good time. It was a lot of pressure from a lot of people. And everybody had their opinion of Malcolm X. And, we were threatened and everything else. We, we, we always joked about uh, we would be in India somewhere selling fruit if this thing didn't work out right because we were going to have our heads. But it, it was a very good experience uh, for me uh, to, to, to get a chance to travel overseas. We, we shot some of the film in, in Egypt, and uh, it was just a great experience. But your question was? I was, I was hoping to hear uh, maybe what you learned in the film um, as I was watching. I think there are a lot of lessons in the movie that, uh, you know, one of the questions, uh, you know, the, the rapper Nas, Nas asked on a song, mm. you know, when Malcolm X died, why didn't we pick up his plan and continue it? Mm. Uh, and, and what I saw at the end of that movie was a tremendous opportunity for black leaders to, to come about and, and, and put some of the things that Malcolm talked about into place, but, but they never happened. And I mm. thought maybe you would have learned something off Well, the you know, we've been blessed slash cursed with free will, God-given free will. And uh, many of the things we fought for, uh, not only Malcolm X, but Martin Luther King and, and many others in the 50s and the 60s that they fought for, we achieved the right to do what we want. <laughs> and, and that's what we exercise now. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for a lot of us, a lot of people, it's, it, we've been led down a path to just, uh, down an economic path, you know, to, to fortune or whatever. And uh, the, the struggles and the battles that were before those people, although they are still before us now, somehow have gotten pushed to the wayside. I, I would be curious to see what uh, uh, Malcolm X would say now or Martin Luther King would say now if he saw the world the way it is now. Thank you. Next. Hi, I would ask this to all the panel members. Um, I work in education, and of course, there's cuts um, for funding um, in the arts and schools more and more these days. Um, so to, to people who really feel that the arts are expendable in schools for kids from K through, through 12, what answers, what response would you give in terms of persuading people that the arts are actually something that we need to keep, both in terms of an aesthetic and sort of a personal sense, but also for people who might be more bottom line oriented, what is it that the arts bring in a very general way to students? Does somebody want to take that? What, what arguments would we make? I couldn't hear a word what said. arguments would we make for the importance of the arts in education? For what? the importance of the arts in education. in education? Why should the arts be taught? Why should the arts be taught? Because they define civilization. <laughs> somebody want to follow that? <laughs> I, when I grew up in high school, uh, there was an arts department. I mean, there was a drama department, and there were various unsundry art departments that you could go to if you were not going to be in academia, or even if you were going to be in academia, but that, you know, not only does society need the arts to define it, as Edward says, but children need the arts to define themselves. 
Um, I think that children need a way to let things out. When I grew up, I grew up in the 50s, um, and women growing up in the 50s, there were a whole hell of a lot of things I was not supposed to be, and they were all inside of me, and the only way I had to get to them and to let them out was on stage. And oh my God, I mean, even in junior high, you just had to watch out because I was filled full of things that I couldn't let out in my own living room. And had I, if I did not have that stage, I really have to say, I don't know what would have become of me. I would not be a whole person as whole as so, I am. Tony, you want to say something? Well, I, I just add that I don't think that uh, anybody really sort of systematically sets out to deprive children of arts education. The reason that there are no arts education classes in a lot of public schools in this country is that there's no funding for public education in this country. Um, the uh, laceration of the tax base in this country has led to an increase in you know, private schooling for, the, for kids who can afford it and for kids who can't afford it, um, going to schools that don't have arts classes don't have sports and don't have desks in classrooms, I mean, which is not an exaggeration. I've been to schools in New York City last year where there were no books in the library and literally not enough desks for students to sit in. So, you know, we need, I think, to look at the decimation of arts education, which I think pretty much most people would agree is incredibly important for kids to get um, in the context of the decimation of, of uh, funding for, you know, uh, sort of a livable uh, decent standard of life in, in, in the United States. I mean, instead of having funding for public education, what we have is, you know, the No Child Left Standing Act, um, which substitutes <laughs> testing kids till they're blue in the face instead of giving uh, money for decent teacher salaries and school buildings that aren't falling down on people's heads and, you know, desks in the classroom and, and arts instruction. So I think it's a, po it's a political struggle. It's appalling. 5% of the kids get a decent education. Uh, the rest don't. But here's a shocking statistic for you. Um, the New York Times went up to Harvard and, and interviewed a whole bunch of the uh, first year class and asked them the following question a few years ago. Why are you at Harvard? Now this is part of the 5%, right? 70% of them said, I am at Harvard so that I can, when I get out, I can get a high paying job. So, if 5% of, 70% uh, of 5% of the educatable people in this country think the function of education is to make a bunch of money rather than be educated in, in citizenship and in, in the ability to vote, uh, we're in far more serious trouble than we even think. Well, that's been true for many decades. I know. This is not a recent invention. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I, I went to college, most of, most of the, I went to an all-male college and most of the guys said so they could get a job and get a high-paying job. So, I mean, it's, it's built into the so-called culture. The, the, if I could just add the one um, statistic that I'd put in here, a rather um, semi-scientific analysis, is I have a friend, Shirley Bryce Heath, who's an anthropologist and has done an enormous amount of work with at-risk youth. And what she found, she did not enter this from an arts perspective, she entered this from an anthropological perspective. She did research on after-school activities and found that any participation in organized after-school activities tended to have a positive effect on at-risk youth. But drama and participation in the theater was off the charts in, what, in how it helped, predicting staying in school, predicting staying out of the criminal justice system, predicting literacy, predicting all, everything else. And she spent years investigating why. And her thesis to just, I mean, it's obscene to boil it down so quickly, but let me try and do it. Her fundamental thesis was that participation in theater and in the drama was training in being human. It was training in empathy. 
that every aspect of being in the theater was about trying to imagine what the world looked like from somebody else's point of view, whether it was acting, whether it was being an audience member, anything. And that those skills are the skills that we view as human, as civilized skills, to go back to where Edward started this. That is what civilization is. And if you don't train the kids in that, well, you need to for your own self-interest, whoever you are. Well, the, 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 Sorry, the advantage of they teach the kids a sense of community. If you put on a play, you are part of a team. It's exactly like playing in an orchestra. Exactly. You are not doing it for yourself. And, that's, and at the same time, you're having fun. Right. And that's so they right. grow up having some sense right. of their fellow. so young that they don't know what's happening to them. At kindergarten, during rest period, the uh, Beethoven string quartet should be played before kids know what a quartet is or who Beethoven is. And there should be reproductions of the great 20th century paintings for these kids to be exposed to art before they, they know what it is and before their family can tell them how dangerous it is. <laughs> Let's take the next question.